turn to the book of Judges. You know, when I think of my deepest regrets over the years, there is no question they are the missed opportunities of my life. The what-ifs, the if-onlys, times that God set the table, but I didn't come to dinner. And if you want to sum up the book of Judges in two words, they would be missed opportunities. The years after Joshua's death could have been a golden age for Israel, but instead it became one of the darkest periods of their history. At the end of Joshua's life, Israel had the enemy on the run. But rather than finish the job and drive out the Canaanites, the Hebrews tolerated the enemy and worshiped their idols and compromised with sin. In other words, they blew an opportunity. The book of Joshua consisted of 24 chapters that covered a period of 30 years. Whereas the book of Judges is 21 chapters long, and it covers a period of 350 years. During those 350 years, Israel had 14 judges. 13 of them are discussed in the book, and according to tradition, the 14th judge, Samuel, was its author. There's an old Pogo comic strip that captures the message of Judges. Pogo comes out of the swamp after fighting a battle, and he says to the people waiting on him, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Well, the book of Judges proves that often we're our own worst enemy. When we put ourselves and our own interests ahead of God's will, it causes us to miss out on opportunities to receive God's wonderful blessings. The last verse of the book of Judges really sums up the whole book. If you flip over quickly, Judges chapter 21 verse 25 compresses this whole book into a single phrase. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges is going to describe what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. Though the book ends on a tragic note, it has a bright beginning. We find the Hebrews working together. Judah and Simeon, two tribes, join forces to drive out the enemy within their borders. Verse 1 says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah knows what I hope you and I have learned, that enemies are easier to defeat when they're double teamed, when we work together. That's why Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Guys, one of the reasons God has put us in a church family, one of the reasons he's brought us together with brothers and sisters is so we don't have to tackle our enemies on our own. A foe is easier to defeat if we fight him together with other believers. That's why God has placed us in a family. We're told, then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men of Bezek. Now, Bezek was a city in the mountains of Samaria, just west of the Jordan River. And they found Adonai Bezek, which means Lord of Lightning. He was in Bezek. That's where Adonai Bezek hung out, was in Bezek. That's where you'd normally find Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now Judah and Simeon, they captured this man that had the grisly habit of amputating the thumbs and the big toes of the kings that he had conquered. This was a form of humiliation. This torture was 
Adonai Bezik's calling card, you might say. It was his signature. A man without a big toe had a shaky foundation. Without a thumb, a man couldn't hold a weapon or even a fork. In ancient times, to be thumbless and to be toeless meant to be helpless. And this was sort of his calling card. Whenever he conquered a person, he'd cut off their big toes and their thumbs. A foe without a toe, you know who did it. Without a thumb, you'd be dumb not to guess Adonai Bizik. I made that up myself this week. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But when the Hebrews caught Adonai Bizik, they chopped off his thumbs and his big toes. He confesses in verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. In other words, what goes around comes around, doesn't it? Or as the Bible puts it, you reap what you sow. Now verse 8 makes an interesting comment. For the children of Israel, or the children of Judah, fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Why then does David have to conquer the city again 400 years later? You see, this was indicative of Israel's problem. They lacked a good follow-through. They didn't hold on to the ground that they had gained. You know, my wife plays tennis. And every now and then, I bless her with some free coaching. I don't charge her a dime. And she's always so grateful for my advice. And here's one of the little tidbits I tell her. Honey, a good serve requires a good follow-through. The same is true spiritually. I hope you know that. When you serve the Lord, don't do it halfway. Follow through. Complete the job. Don't leave it for King David or for Pastor Steve to have to come back behind you and take care of what you neglected. Don't forget, a job ain't over till it's over. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiroth Arba, and they killed Shisha, Haman, and Talmah. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, the name of Debir was formerly Kirath-Zephyr. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirath-Zephyr and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. Caleb throws in an incentive here to draw out the bravest boys. He offers them a pretty girl. He says, hey, you go down and you knock off Debir and you can marry a real knockout my daughter, Aksa. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as wife. And of course, it was a win-win situation for Caleb. Judah wins a battle, and Caleb finds a brave man to marry his daughter. You know, in today's culture, young ladies are looking for a sensitive man. Some are looking for a handsome man. Most are probably looking for a rich man. But you know what? I want my daughter to marry a brave man. For life is full of challenges. And in the face of an obstacle or an enemy, too many guys today opt for the path of least resistance. I want to know my daughter is married to a man who when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I want my girl yoked to a man who's not afraid to press on and keep at it and persevere to the end. That's the kind of man Othniel was. Verse 14 says, Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And so she said to him, give me a blessing. 
Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. You know, one thing about Oxa, she wasn't afraid to ask. You know, she's already got land down in the south, and now she asks her daddy for a spring. Why is it that we get in a place in our relationship with God where we stop asking? Why is that? (laughs) Do we think we've tapped out God's grace? No, God is like Caleb. Look at what he does. Then Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. God does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Asa requests a spring and daddy gives her two. Hey, this is the heart of our heavenly father towards us. He wants to give good gifts to his kids, but we've got to ask. You remember what Jesus said? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. God never tires of us asking. Now, the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, you remember his name, Jethro, went up from the city of Palms. Anybody know what city that was? Jericho. It'll be named that several times, but the city of Palms was always Jericho. With the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. But again, Judah failed to maintain possession of each of these cities, for Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron will later become Philistine strongholds. And the lesson, again, is it's not enough just to gain ground spiritually if we then turn around and lose what we've gained. Some of our middle schoolers have all come back pumped up from the retreat last week, and they're so excited. You know, God's made such progress in their lives. But we need to encourage them to maintain that passion and that love for God that's been cultivated in their heart. We need to keep them fanning that flame. You know, it's one thing to gain ground. It's another thing to maintain what you've gained. Hebrews 10 tells us, hold fast the confession of our hope. This is what's important. G.K. Chesterton once said it this way, the only way to love anything is to realize it can be lost. It's true. There are what I call Teflon Christians. Nothing sticks. God teaches them and blesses them, and they forget what God has done almost as soon as it happens. Hey, when God opens your eyes to a truth or when he works in your heart, please remember it and nurture it and embrace it by faith and never let it go. Don't let the devil steal it away. Well, verse 19 tells us, So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. You see, the Canaanites had entered the Iron Age. And they had built a fleet of iron chariots. And rather than trust God, Judah became intimidated by the technology. And let's us not fall into that same trap. Let's not be intimidated by the technology. You know, space age physics, biotech genetics still fall under the authority of the word of God. The Bible still speaks to these areas as it does all of life. And it's our job to search the scriptures and apply it to new advances and to new technologies. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. And then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. And you remember the Anakim were the giants in the land. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Another missed opportunity. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies 
saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword and they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. And so two Luzes. And you know what the police were called in the city of Luz? The Fuzz. And the newspaper was called The Buzz. That's right, in Luz. I made that stuff up too, you know. (laughs) However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages. And when we go to Israel and take the tour, man, Bethshan is one of the highlights. It has some ruins and some archaeological digs and all at Bethshan, some of the finest in all of the world. And its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And apparently they were more determined than the Israelites were to drive them out. Did you know there are some sinful influences There are some old habits that are determined to live in your life. You have to be more determined. You have to be more determined to drive them out, to uproot the enemy, to push him out and drive him out of the land. The problem was that these Canaanites were more determined to live in the land than the Israelites were to drive them out. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Another missed opportunity. And the rest of chapter 1 is really a long record of four-foot putts that didn't drop. In other words, missed opportunities. Chances for birdie that ended up par. Chances for par that ended up bogeys. Not one of the 12 tribes drove out the enemy completely. Listen to these verses. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Drop down a bit. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. For they would not allow them to come down to the valley. Talk about being held hostage in your own territory. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Eventually, Ephraim ended up subduing these people, but Dan never did. Dan lived as mountain men up in the mountains. And they were afraid to come down into the fertile valleys and take possession of the farmland because of the Canaanites who were more determined to be in their land than they were to drive them out. Keep that in mind. Now chapter 2 is a flashback. Verse 6 tells us that Joshua is still alive at the time and still in command. So this is kind of flashing back in time. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now God sends a spokesman. And remember, the word angel doesn't necessarily mean supernatural being. It simply means messenger. Sometimes it's an earthly messenger. Sometimes it's a heavenly messenger. The word just means messenger. And notice here, this messenger speaks of God in the first person. He says, I will never break my covenant. He's speaking as if he's God himself, is he not? It's a messenger from God, but it sounds like God. And notice too, the angel doesn't come from heaven, as you would expect some angels to come from. But he comes from Gilgal up to Boykin. Gilgal was Israel's base of operation throughout the conquest of the promised land. Now we talked back in Joshua chapter 5 about the man that Joshua met outside of Jericho by the river Jordan. He met the commander of the Lord's army. 
And we talked about there that there was a good chance that the commander of the Lord's army was probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I think it's not just possible but probable that Jesus actually stayed on in Gilgal throughout the conquest of Canaan and directed the effort. And now he comes up from Gilgal, a messenger of God. He comes up from Gilgal and he speaks to them at Boakim and he rebukes Israel for not trusting him and fully possessing the land. He says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And here he repeats what God had predicted in Joshua 23. If the people hold on to these unhealthy influences and these ungodly habits, if they tolerate sin in its sources, their sin will become a snare to them. It'll hinder their spiritual growth. It'll hassle their soul. Did you know the sins you keep holding on to, man? They're just a snare to you. They're what's keeping you back. They're what's holding you down. There's what, they're what's causing these missed opportunities that are keeping you from God's best. It's time to drive those things out of your life. He says, so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Boykim, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. And always remember, compromise with evil eventually produces weeping and regret. Verse 6, And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Notice this. Joshua's death exposes a spiritual generation gap in the nation Israel. For unlike their fathers, the generation that came after Joshua didn't know God, nor did they know the works of God. You see, as long as Joshua and his peers, his elders, were alive, the people served the Lord. But as soon as they started dying off, verse 11 tells us, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now Baal was the god of the storm. And the Canaanites would try to appease Baal so that rain would water their crops. Ashtaroth was the fertility goddess. She brought fruitfulness to families and to farmlands. She was worshipped by lewd and immoral sexual practices. And it grieved the heart of God that His people Israel had forsaken His revelation, His miraculous acts of deliverance, to depend on these sinister superstitions. Notice again, verse 7. Joshua knew God personally. His elders knew the works of God, but their offspring knew neither. You see, the third generation had no faith at all. We're going to see this later in Israel's history. You remember David followed God with his whole heart. His son Solomon had a half-hearted devotion to the Lord. But Solomon's son Rehoboam had no heart for God at all. 
Obviously, secondhand experiences with God only go so far. Hey, a man knows God. God works in his life. His son sees that work. God answers his father's prayers. The son sees it. He witnesses God active in the life of his father. That son might be impressed enough to follow in his father's footsteps, but the son that comes after, the third generation, the man's grandson who only hears about God, will just forget it. He's not going to follow God on mere hearsay. You see, hearsay never captures a heart. It never transforms a life. It never humbles a person. This is why every generation, every new generation, needs its own experience of God. You see, all true Christians are really first-generation Christians. Everyone needs to meet God and experience Him personally. Here's a lesson for us parents Don't just impose your convictions and your faith on your kids. Help your kids cultivate their own walk with God. This is what makes the difference. And you know, we've already studied one parent who was an excellent example of this. Caleb. Remember Caleb? We just talked about him. It's interesting to me. Caleb could have conquered Debir by himself. He was certainly game enough for it. But he shrewdly recruited a man by promising him his daughter in marriage in order to motivate that man to discover the greatness of God on his own. Thus, he ended up with a son-in-law who knew firsthand God's power and God's faithfulness. I got a guy dating Natalie right now. I think I'm going to tell him to go out and fight somebody, you know, and (laughs) trust God and strike some Philistines down or something, and then we'll talk about it. Hey, rather than shove your Christianity down your kid's throat, find ways to motivate your kids to seek the Lord and develop their own relationship with God. This is truly how our children walk with God and live lives of faith. It's something that they get through their own experience, not through ours. Well, the rest of chapter 2 describes the cycle that occurs over and over in the book of Judges. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down six words because we're going to see this same cycle repeated countless times. Actually, about seven times in the book of Judges. Write down these six words. Sin. For all you tech grads, that's S. I-N. Servitude. S-E-R-V-I-T-U-D-E. Supplication. Savior. Spirit. Serenity. Get those six words? Sin. Servitude. Supplication, Savior, Spirit, Serenity. Now here's how it works. The people are going to sin. They're going to follow false gods. And God is going to cause their enemies to enslave them. They're going to be forced into servitude. The Hebrews are going to cry out to God to deliver them. They're going to make supplication and prayers. God will raise up a Savior a judge, if you will, to lead the Hebrews to victory. The Spirit of God will come upon that judge with supernatural power to win battles. Then the period of calm and serenity will follow until it is interrupted again by Israel's sin. And the cycle gets repeated all over again. You'll see this cycle occur seven times, at least seven times in the book of Judges. Now verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges 
who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, when we think of judges, we envision a bunch of old men dressed up in black robes. They're holding wooden gavels in their hand, and they've got a lot of legal degrees after their name. The judges of Israel were not like the Supreme Court justices. These Old Testament judges were mighty men. They were virtuous vigilantes, patriots of purity. I call them righteous Rambos. These judges were common men and women with no credentials other than the call of God on their life. They were folks in whom God had ignited a fire for freedom and a passion for holiness and a hunger for truth and a zeal for justice. They rallied the nation together and they did battle to liberate the Hebrews. These judges were Israel's heroes, their patriots. And yet, they would not listen to their judges. And thus, shortly after their deliverance, the cycle would start all over again. But they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. And notice the cycle gets repeated, but with each generation, it gets worse than the last. Notice verse 19. They behaved more corruptly than their fathers. You know, it's kind of like watching a toilet bowl after you flush. You know, each swirl just kind of gets a little lower and a little lower. It just gets worse. Vivid illustration. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Does the Lord ever get angry? Oh, yes. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. It, was be, it would be a test, these nations. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just rapture the moment after you got saved? Would have made things a lot easier, wouldn't it? I mean, he saves us because he wants fellowship with us. Why don't he just rapture us right on out of the world and, and just bring us into his glory and that would just make a whole lot of sense to me. Why are we left in this world? Why are we left among the enemy, subject to trial and to temptation? Well, the answer for us is the same as it was for ancient Israel. Life is a test. It's only a test. The Christian life is an opportunity to prove our faithfulness, to develop our character and our endurance, to show some resistance, to prove to God how much we love Him. It's a test. It's only a test. Well, chapter 3 tells us, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that He might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites and these other rites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. In other words, they failed the test. And so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. Now remember the fivefold cycle. The nation's sin is followed by a servitude. In this case, it lasts eight years until the people cry out to God in supplication. Verse 9. When the children of Israel heard, cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The guy that got the bride became the very first judge, Othniel, Ox's bow. And God raises up a Savior now to lead his people. And notice this. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he judged Israel. The Holy Spirit infuses Othniel with supernatural power. And he goes out and he liberates his people. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan, Rishathathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over. And I said this guy's name four times and I've said it differently each time. Cushan, Rishathathim. And so the land had rest for 40 years. Israel now enjoys that period of peace and serenity until then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the cycle starts all over. So what's the cycle? Sin, servitude, supplication, Savior, Spirit, serenity. Remember that as we go through the book. Verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms or Jericho. And this must have been heartbreaking to God and to the people. Remember the miraculous battle of Jericho? Israel had taken Jericho. God had worked a miracle so that Israel could take Jericho. And now the gain has been negated. They lose Jericho. It's back into pagan hands because they didn't follow through in their service to God. And so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And just out of curiosity, how many of you tonight are left-handed? Raise your hand. Boy, that's a lot of left-handers in the crowd tonight. Statistics say that approximately one out of every ten people or so are left-handed. In ancient times, left-handedness was actually viewed as a handicap. I hate to tell you guys that. It was considered a physical deformity, a birth defect to be left-handed. In fact, the English word, G-A-U-C-H-E, Jill, how is that pronounced? Gauche? It means crude or uncouth, kind of socially awkward, gauche. But the English word comes from the French word that means left-handed. The Latin word for left-handedness gets translated into English as the word sinister, which of course means evil or wicked. The point is, is that God chose a man who was viewed as inadequate and deficient to do his work. It made sure that all of the credit for Ehud's victory would go to God and not to himself, not to the instrument God had chosen, but to God himself. By Ehud, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now this Eglon, he was making his headquarters down in Jericho. And that's when Ehud went up to present his tribute or his tax to Eglon. But along with the tribute, Ehud had another little surprise he brought with him for King Eglon. Verse 16. For now Ehud 
made himself a dagger. And it was a double-edged dagger. And it was a cubit or 18 inches in length. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Ehu made this two-edged dagger, 18 inches long. Evidently, the dagger fit into a holster that he was able to strap on his thigh underneath his clothes. And so he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. He was extremely obese. He looked sort of like a Jabba the Hutt. As an Eglon for you. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret for you, O king. And indeed he did. He said, keep silence. All who attended him went out from him. He wanted to hear this secret. And Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And so he arose from his seat, and I figured that Eglon was so fat that it was difficult for him to even get out of his chair. And so when he leaned forward to hear the secret, it made him more vulnerable to Ehud's attack. Then Ehud reached with his left hand and he took the dagger from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly. And I picture Ehud sort of coming over to whisper in King Eglon's ear, you know, and he comes over and he just kind of puts his arm around his shoulder like this, you know, and kind of pulls the king up a little closer and then... And then he digs it in. That's how I picture it. Ehud delivers the message from God. The God of Israel is the one true God. And apparently Eglon got the point. And here was the first message ever preached using PowerPoint. Right here, PowerPoint. Verse 21, even the hilt, the handle on the blade, went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. But he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. The king got gutted. It was a bloody end to O Eglon. Ehud left his dagger as a calling card. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Good idea. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. In other words, he's using the john. Don't worry. So they waited till they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master falling dead on the floor. But Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Zerah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Obviously there's several lessons in this story for us. First, God used Ehud's perceived weakness to win a victory. He stabbed the king with his left hand. You know, God often turns our weaknesses into strengths when we turn them over to Him. I think you should stop using your handicap as an excuse. Instead, you should see it as an opportunity to God, for God to show Himself strong on your behalf. He wants to do that. 
And second, as we learned this morning, Hebrews chapter 4 refers to the Bible as what? Sharper than a two-edged sword. Ephesians 6 calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. God's Word is a spiritual dagger. Its message cuts. It gets to the point. And it's two-sided. In other words, it works both ways for us and on us. It harms the enemy, but it also exposes our fleshly thoughts. Guys, use the Word and start by using it on yourself. Well, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. The second judge gets summed up in a single verse. Shamgar picked up an ox goad, a cattle prodder, and he killed 600 men all by himself. It was similar to what Samson did with the jawbone of a donkey. He killed a thousand Philistines. Obviously, the Spirit of God came on Shamgar just as he will later on Samson. The story reminds me of a poem. I didn't make this up. <laughs> Shamgar had an ox goad. David had a sling. Samson had a jawbone. Rahab had a string. Mary had some ointment. Aaron had a rod. Dorcas had a needle. All were used by God. And Shamgar's cattle prodder reminds us that even the little things become important and become powerful when they're turned over to God and when they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. One other point about Shamgar that I think is interesting. Verse 31 says that he was the son of Anath. The name Anath was the name of a Canaanite idol. Evidently, this man came from a family of idolaters. This just goes to prove you may be the only believer in your family. You may be the only believer at work. You may be the only believer in your neighborhood or in your circle of friends, but you can still stand strong for God. Ehud had a physical handicap. Shamgar had a spiritual deficiency. Othniel seems to have had all the advantages the next chapter, Deborah is a woman. Do you get the impression that God can use just about anybody? Chapter 4. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And once again, this cycle starts all over again. The people sin. And so the Lord sold them servitude into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hogayim, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. And guys, according to ancient standards, Jabin's 900 iron chariots would have constituted a military juggernaut. Now up until now, the judges have been men. But in verse 4, we find Deborah. Now Deborah, a prophetess. The wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. God promises a great victory to Barak. Notice now, God calls a man to lead his people to battle. Now the judge at the time was Deborah. But God called a man to lead the people. We learn in the New Testament that in the church and in the home, God ordains male leadership. And this is not just a cultural accommodation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, both chapters explain that God takes this back all the way to creation. This is for all men in all times. 1 Timothy 2 states, I do not permit a woman to teach 
or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And why? Is it cultural? Oh, no. He takes it all the way back to creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. At home and in the church, the man should lead and the woman should follow. But when a man refuses to lead, God will raise up a woman like Deborah. A woman to do the job. God won't let his work be hindered for the lack of a godly man. He will raise up a woman. You know, it's so sad to me, but there are many Christian women today who have to wear the britches in their family because their husband is either afraid or unfit to lead the family spiritually. It's tragic. I believe the greatest need in the church today, in the world today, is for men to step up to the plate and be spiritual leaders in their home and in their family. I think there are many Christian women who who are leading right now, but oh my, they would be more than willing to follow. They want to be led. They're just waiting on their husband to take the initiative and to lead. Well, verse 8, Barak steps up, sort of. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go, Debbie. God, what a wimp. I mean, Deborah is obviously the capable, strong-willed, courageous woman here. But notice, she recognizes the spiritual importance of male leadership. She'd have probably been better off doing this without Barack. But she gets him involved. She calls for him to lead the people. And she even chastises him for wanting to hide behind her skirt. Verse 9. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. In other words, in the end, a woman is going to strike the decisive blow, and it's going to take some of the luster off the victory, some of the luster from you, Barak, off of this victory. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. They went northward to Kedesh there in the valley of Lebanon. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and earlier it was Jethro, now it's Hobab. Apparently the guy went by two names. He had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Zanim, which is beside Kedesh, and they reported to Sisera. These Midianite nomads, they're now spying for Sisera. And they reported that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor overlooks a very famous valley in the northern part of Israel. And any of you guys that went to Israel, do you remember what that valley was? That down below Mount Tabor? The Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, is right below Mount Tabor. And so the Israelites camped out on top of Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hegoyim to the river Kishon. I mean, Sisera at this point is licking his chops. This is every general's dream. Sisera is commanding a modern army. Israel, on the other hand, is basically defenseless. They're powerless. If you flip over to chapter 5, verse 8, you find that not a single shield or spear was seen among the Israelites. They've got no weapons. Jabin, Sisera, he's got 900 iron chariots and all the paraphernalia that goes with them. Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? And and why is Deborah the one giving the battle charge? Again, this Barak, he must have been such a timid guy. He's just kind of sitting there waiting on her to do something. She's the one that says to Barak, Up, let's go, let's charge. And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, following him. And I got to tell you, on the surface, this was terrible military strategy. Barak gives up the high ground. 
And he steps out into this valley where the chariots of Sisera can crush his troops under their wheels. This is, this is an incredible picture. Israel is outmanned, they're outmachined, and now they're outmaneuvered. Israel seems to be heading for an ugly, brutal beating. Or so it seems. Instead, God intervenes in an incredible way, a miraculous way. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. How did God do it? Well, we're going to discover this next week. But in chapter 5, in the victory song that was written by Deborah, in her song, she speaks of this battle. And she says that God brought heavy torrential rains into the valley of Megiddo. Now, imagine being one of Sisera's chariot drivers. You're in an iron chariot. You're driving through a valley of farmland when suddenly you find yourself in the middle of a flash flood and a thunderstorm. Your iron chariot is going to get stuck in the mud. And do you really want to be in an iron chariot in the middle of a thunderstorm? Golf carts aren't very safe. Iron chariots are even more dangerous. I mean, it's like sitting in a lightning rod. It's like asking for a lightning strike. You're in this iron chariot, thunder and lightning cracking all around you. Trust me, Sisera's army jumped out of their chariots they went off in confusion. They ran for their lives. And the army of Barak was able to mow them down one at a time. It was amazing. And this is what General Sisera did. Sisera alighted. He jumped off from his chariot. And he fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hogayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. Jael offers this fugitive king some refuge. What a sweet gal. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a... Let me just tuck you in, sister. I know you've had a hard day. And then he said, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Notice he asks for water, but she gives him milk. Every night before I go to bed, I get a glass of milk. Why? Because milk is a natural sedative. It puts you to sleep. J.L. wants Sisera to go to sleep. And he said to her, stand at the door of the... By the way, honey, do we have any milk in the refrigerator? <laughs> Never mind. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say, no. Jael is supposed to stand guard and divert the posse while Sisera catches a few winks. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer. This is a sweet gal. <laughs> took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove that peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. <laughs> and so he died. She just drilled that tent peg right through his head, threw one ear right out the other, and boom! Just nailed his noggin to the ground. Notice Sisera also gets the point. He also gets a Cedron headache, for sure. And you remember, Deborah had told Barak, 
that a woman would deal the decisive blow. Jael strikes that decisive blow. And verse 22 concludes, And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. 